This episode is proudly sponsored by ShakeBay, Canada's easiest way to buy and earn Bitcoin in 10 minutes or less with no deposit or withdrawal fees. It's so easy, even the boomer can do it. Guys, I've personally been using ShakePay for several years and highly recommend them. Their mobile app makes it super easy to buy and sell Bitcoin. All you have to do is e-transfer directly to your ShakePay account and you're ready to go. So head over to shakepay.com or download the mobile app, use the referral code LOONYHOUR and get $30 of free Bitcoin when you sign up. ShakePay gives out free Bitcoin to every user every day just by shaking your phone. They call this the shaking sats feature. It's awesome. I highly encourage you to go check it out. ShakePay has also just launched one of Canada's only Bitcoin cashback prepaid credit cards, which gives users up to 2% Bitcoin cashback on every transaction. If you want to opt out, Canadian dollars and start earning rewards through Bitcoin, go check out ShakePay. Once again, guys, that's shakepay.com. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour episode 52, the official one-year anniversary. Thank you all for your support. 52 episodes almost in the bag here. Uh, welcome back to the show. As always, we've got the three amigos. We've got Keith, Keith Dicker of Ice Cap Asset Management in his Patagucci jacket and Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. We did it. <laughs> We survived 51. one whole year of lockdown. So no, no. I'm sick of you guys already. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> it's like the movie uh, Step Brothers, right? You know, you love each other and hate each other and everything. Right. I have to say, like, over the last year, and uh, I think, you know, a lot of my single favorite moments were just when I was telling stories and stuff, because I thought they were pretty cool. But my second favorite overall is, is Rich in your T-shirts. Like, they're, they're pretty epic. I think Some of them are going viral like, on Twitter. I know they're especially my favorite one is just a rich wearing a t-shirt of rich. That's pretty cool. Hey guys, I have something special for us because it is the one year birthday, correct? That's right. I don't want it. Whatever it is, I don't want it. Oh, <laughs> so for every, if you're rich, listening to the uh, audio version Keith, of this, yeah, Keith see, has you a describe Twinkie. what I have. Keith has a Twinkie with a candle in it. And uh, he's he's now lighting the candle, so we now have a Twinkie on fire. Wait a second. No, oh. <laughs> tough. tough to watch. Yeah, he doesn't know how to use a match. Let's try another one. Child safety. Okay, matches. well, while while we're on this, uh, we actually oh, fire. have a fire. <laughs> well done. Okay. You gotta eat that. Uh, thing, wait. Right? Shit, I want to sing happy birthday, but I can't lift it up. It's going to break. <laughs> there we go. Happy birthday, Looney Hour. Cool. Boom. Blow it out. Well done. One, two, three. <laughs> it's cool. Eat that thing now. All so right, guys, I was... Wait, wait, wait. I was in uh, New York there once, a few years back, uh, just off of Rockefeller Center, you know, that area. It's a place called Bill's Burger Barn. 
So if you like burgers, you know, and then you're in New York, go there. But one of the key things they do, what they're famous for, if it's a, a birthday in your, you know, in your in your group or party, uh, they have this guy from from the kitchen, like he's like a baritone, and he comes out with you know a cupcake or something with sparklers on it, and all the staff will fall to the table, and he's going happy birthday, you know, in, in that manner. Anyway, oh, it's a good bit of fun. So maybe, maybe Bill's for next burgers, Looney Hour. Yeah, burger was, was burger is always good. Bill's but, Burgers uh, for the Looney Hour live event next year, twenty twenty three. Yeah, look at your New calendar. York. New York City. Eat, eat, okay. eat those burgers while you can, boys, before they get banned. So uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> enjoy enjoy them while you can. Burgers aren't <laughs> cheap these days either. Um, with that though, with the, the one year anniversary, we have a big announcement in the Looney Hour. The uh live looney hour event for december the 1st is officially confirmed uh it will be in toronto and it will be drum roll at the hockey hall of fame um so yeah i think it's a it's a really unique venue obviously i think it kind of coincides with with everything this podcast is trying to do which is you know make light and have some fun um you know keep it canadian and so we'll be doing the live event December 1st in Toronto at the Hockey Hall of Fame. We'll have some details and tickets to be released over the next one to two weeks. You guys will be the first to hear, obviously, about the announcements. So stick, stay tuned into the podcast for that. Uh, but we have the whole concourse actually being rented out. Uh, so, like, you know, you usually have to go and you have to pay an admission to, to walk around the, the concourse. Um, so they've got like games, all the jerseys, game worn memorabilia, the Stanley Cup. Everything's going to be there. We've got the entire concourse. Um, we've then got we've rented out inside the concourse. It's called the TSN Theater. Uh, that seats about 140, 150 people. So we'll be jamming that thing to the brim. Um, so yeah, definitely looking forward to that. And uh, hope hope obviously as many of you can can join and 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 come hang out. Cool. So one, one thing I'm looking forward to about having it there, I'm going to have my elbows up whenever I walk into oh the corner. Oh, my God. <laughs> Pretty, the loony hour is getting, oh, getting sued. <laughs> Lawsuits flying around left, right, and well, center. I'll be looking at all the Stanley Cups the Montreal Canadiens have won. Uh, and anybody who wants to come talk, talk talk hockey with me and uh, Macro, I'll be more than happy to. It'll be really fun. Man. We'll get to meet some people like we did in Vancouver, which was just amazing. Get some shakes, some hands, kiss some babies, and um, so that was it. Was drinks, really the, good. and the drinks will be flowing. Most importantly, so yes, very much. Um, so. And it's um, going to be yeah, we'll have a good chat. It's going to be a great time. If you guys, anyone that was there in Vancouver, we had a blast, and uh, I think it was a great success. So looking forward to seeing you guys at the Hockey Hall of Fame, December the first. Uh, stay tuned for those details. But while we're at it, I think this is a great sort of transition piece here. So I'm actually in Toronto right now. Uh, I'm actually at this. Um, Veritas housing conference. They do it every year. So I was a speaker at this uh, event, basically just talking all about Canadian housing, which is near and dear to our, to our hearts here. So I'll kind of give you guys a little bit of background on that. So, you, you know, I'll save you the $500 admission uh, fee that they were charging everybody. Um, but I think, you know, to sort of bring some context to this is we actually had an update on the some housing stats in Vancouver and in Toronto for the month of September. So those have officially uh, come out. And uh, yeah, so Greater Vancouver home sales were down 46, 46, 46% year over year in September. Uh, over the past 30 years, so I think last week I said, hey, guys, it might be a 30-year low. It was like more or less 
within like a hundred sales, it was basically a 30 year low. But so the only time we've had a slower month of September were uh, September of 2008. Of course, you can figure out what happened that year in that month, uh, September, 2012 and September, 2018. So very, very weak month for greater Vancouver uh, home sales. Same thing in the GTA. You had um, in the GTA, you had a 44% decline. Um, it was a 20 year low for home sales in the GTA. So you got your two largest markets in Canada, basically, uh, have almost no transactions happening right now. Uh, what is interestingly, uh, what's happening just to kind of expand on this is that new listings. So, you know, the buyers clearly don't like the prices today. Um, uh, so you got a buyer strike, but we actually now have a seller strike because new listings in greater Vancouver and in the GTA are basically at 20 year lows as well. So sellers are pulling their listings off the market and they're, 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 they're putting up a fight. So again, whether that's the right decision or the wrong decision, uh, th there was always this notion that, Hey, we're going to get this flood of, of inventory. Everyone's going to foreclose. And like, we're not seeing that it's still very early could happen. Um, but as of right now, sellers are actually digging in their heels and we're actually seeing prices despite very weak sales prices are actually firming up right now. So it's an interesting dynamic. Keith, I'm sorry, Keith, sorry, Steve, what, what percent do you think of people are like, negative equity, you know, and like in the height of the 2008 bubble in the US, I mean, in, in some jurisdictions, like in Arizona or Las Vegas, I saw numbers of like 40% of households were in negative equity. I know, I know it's not going to be like that um, in Canada, because we just have a different mortgage market, etc. But do you I mean, do you could you put a number on it? If you have, if you had to guess? I have no idea. I think like, I don't know what the, the bank LTVs are, Keith. I think they're around like 50%. Like that's like their, okay. their book, I think. So like, you have to think there's like, I think there's uh one third of Canadians that have like no, no mortgage at all. They own right. their home outright. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I think like the, the problem is, is you've had a 30 year bull market where like prices have just gone up so much. Like I think to get back to pre pandemic prices, like you have to drop like 30% nationally just to get back right. to pre pandemic levels. And right now, right now we're down 12%. So like that gets you back to pre pandemic. And I think many people would argue that pre pandemic prices were actually still pretty rich. They were, they were, if you look at the, like the OECD, house price to income, house price to rent ratios, they were higher than I, if I'm not mistaken, every other OECD country. So, and then, so yeah, it was still quite rich even in 2019. And then it's gone up from that. Yeah. So let me just give you guys like a little bit of context. Um, there was some really, really good speeches, like people from like all aspects of like the Canadian economy and housing market. So we had like, and a lot of like most of these guys are on, on Twitter. Um, so we had like Ron Butler, uh, who's runs one of the largest brokerages, uh, mortgage broker companies in Canada. We had um, John Love, who basically he's a billionaire. He founded Kingset Capital, and they basically like fund like massive development projects in Canada. Uh, just so many, so many smart people, and I think like everybody's of the view that like the bull case for Canadian housing right now is like prices go flat. Like that's the optimistic scenario is that like we get a flat line here and and that's the optimistic scenario. The bear case is obviously a, a, a you know a deepening depending on where interest rates go. Um, I think that uh, the consensus seemed to be that 
because new listings are basically extremely low right now that we're actually going more into like a slow grind right now where buyers and sellers are both like fighting each other on pricing. And so like prices are like, I think going to trickle lower into next year. Uh, We also had, you know, economists from CMHC there and everything. So it's really, really fascinating. One of the things that there seems to be a resounding um, belief in, and it was really interesting to, to hear, you know, uh, to, to hear John's comment, John Love at Kingset, uh, really, really smart guy. I mean, like, again, you don't get to billionaire status, I think, without knowing a, a thing or two and how to operate. And uh, his view was, if you look at Canada's recent immigration stats, which I think we touched on last episode, 55-year high, you know, 700,000 new people year over year. What's happening now is that housing projects are being shelved rather aggressively in Kingset, which funds a lot of these new construction projects said like, yep, we're canceling or like we're, we're more conservative on our debt. So like these pro and so see, you know, the presentation that CMHC gave at this, at this meeting was we need to build, I think it was like 3 million new homes by 2030, which is like never going to happen. And now you're seeing housing starts like roll over. So the, the, the view is basically the next like 12 to 24 months are going to be challenging for Canadian housing. But if you're looking like five years out, like the population immigration story hasn't changed. And the fact that governments around the approval of new housing, it's so bureaucratic. You have so much nimbyism. Uh, it's impossible to get things built because of all the, the the levels of government that you're just never going to, I think, have an overabundance of housing. There's a floor. There's a floor. There's, there's a floor. floor at all there's these prices. A floor. Yeah. And people don't like to hear that, but I mean, it's just like, that's kind of the reality. So yeah, I think like prices will go down here uh, in the, in the short to near term. And, but I think structurally government is policymakers are slow to react. The system is so bureaucratic. It's just, it's impossible to change. Just a, uh, I have a question for you, Steve, as well as a, a comment as well. Uh, so first of all, the comment, you know, from a, a, a capitalistic perspective or from capitalism, whatever the right word is, um, if, if I want to allocate my capital to the real estate market right now, I want to make sure I'm going to get a required, there's a required return that I want as an investor. Now, I don't mean I'm going to buy a house and flip it or something if, if I'm a developer and stuff like that. And so I'm sitting on my capital and I'm looking around and I'm seeing, oh, wow, like things are, are pretty bearish and stuff like that. You know, I'm going to be a bit hesitant to allocate my capital to that opportunity. And I suspect that's what's happening right across not only the country right now, but in other markets as well. Um, because remember, like the private sector money is very different than government money. Government money does not run on a, on a profit and loss. It's, you know, for the good of society and all that stuff. Uh, but as a developer, I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to invest my money in this if, if I'm going to lose on it. So I think you, we will have that struggle coming up. It, uh, the question I have for you is, because you're at that conference and, you know, you know that industry so much better than, than I do. Um, give me the knock-on effects of a bear market in housing, you know, starting with 
you know, the, the realtors at the top, of course, and then, you know, going down to mortgage brokers and like who else is involved in, in the chain, the food chain? And what are, what do you think they're seeing these days? Sort of just share that perspective for everyone. Yeah, it's a good question. Cause we really have like a whole array of industry specialists in different areas that can, you know, they all intersect. Right. So, you know, top down from obviously the realtors are going hungry these days. Um, but, you know, it, it starts to run into like the, the house in Canada, like again, right or wrong, it is what it is. Uh, the house has been used as an ATM machine, um, particularly over the last 10, 15 years, right? So anytime, you know, we always talk about Canadian household debt levels and, oh my gosh, everybody's so indebted. But like, as long as your house goes up, you can you can just keep refinancing and, and 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 especially when interest rates keep going lower and lower right you just keep every couple of years you refinance you take out a bit of equity you pay down your high interest level debt whatever uh, or you, hey even if values go up a lot you can always just re, you know you can always just sell cuz you can't afford it anymore you can sell pay off some of your debt and downsize or whatever so i feel like sort of it's kind of the old analogy that a rolling loan carries no loss right and so now we're entering a situation where, yeah, house prices are dropping and not only that, but interest rates are going up. So like, it's kind of like the people that sort of could extend and pretend are now going to face that, that difficult scenario. And so this is going to play into, you know, fewer home renovations, you know, the buying your car on a home equity line of credit or, cause you have to think about it, right? It's like, your variable, if you floated a variable rate mortgage this year, you're up about 300 basis points year to date. So yeah, as we talked about a million dollar mortgage, it's 1500 bucks a month, roughly. People will just cut everywhere else. And so um, that's really what you're going to see is just economy wide. I think you're going to see uh, that this is going to have impacts, but it takes time. It's so long and drawn out. Are you seeing evidence from the banks right now that they're uh, being more restrictive with lending or is it business as usual? Yeah, we had one of the big banks uh, actually come out this week that's going to be changing some internal policy. Um, it's obviously not publicly announced, but the, one, of the, one of the big banks will be tightening credit, um, you know, lowering, lowering sort of their total, you know, TDS ratios on what you can borrow uh, you know, private lenders are tightening up too, right? So if you're a private lender, um, you know, you're, you're, they're dropping their loan to values and how much they want to lend. So it's, it all has these knock-on effects, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, we haven't faced these levels, these levels of mortgage rates in, you know, 14, 14 years, right? So I think it's going to be painful. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, we actually had some comments from from Tiff Macklem today, which I'd love to sort of get into, right? Because everybody's, I mean, hey, I mean, myself included, I, I've been first to admit that, you know, the interest rate call at the beginning of the year was was dead wrong. Um, but you sort of adjust and pivot with the information that comes in hand and, and there doesn't seem to be any pivot coming. And, and the, the more, let's put it this way, the more resilient that Canadian housing continues to be, I mean, I don't know if I'd say it's been resilient, but like the fact that it's like, okay, prices are sort of firming up a bit. The more resilient that it is, the more ammo it gives for the Bank of Canada to keep hiking rates. So they go, hey, look, we're, we still haven't broken anything. People still don't believe us that rates are going up. Because like I said, sellers are pulling their listings off the market. Um, 
and we got a 20 year low in new listings because every seller believes that ah, th at this time it will be short term. Any correction, Canadian housing is always short term. I just, I'll wait till next spring. And like, what if next spring is worse? You know, so, what, what was, yeah, so what was really interesting today? Uh, so, what, one of our Looney Hour friends, Peter Kay in, in Toronto. He was at Thanks, the event. Peter. God bless, Peter. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, uh, but he, Peter tweeted out the story and it was, it was something that, you know, we were noticing even before the article came out. So, um, you know, so today is Thursday here. And um, when we look at markets today, I mean, is it from a currency perspective, you know, Euro, CAD, Aussie, Rand, pounds, Kiwi, like everything is down between one, one and a half percent. Uh, in the yen is down as well dramatically, which I want to I want to touch on. But the big thing with Canadian dollar, so on a day when you know oil continues to scream higher, and the Bank of Canada comes out and they're screaming that they're going to raise rates higher. Yet the Canadian dollar is is weaker, and so maybe the pivot isn't necessarily this is for Canadians. From a currency perspective, maybe the, the pivot that you shouldn't be looking for is, you know, when do central banks actually stop raising rates? And by the way, the Aussies did pivot this week. They only raised by a quarter point. So they, they gave in, right? Because their housing market could go kaboom, you know, at, at a moment's notice. Yeah, but, it's about uh, variable. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. They're, you know, they're they're pretty good. Are uh, they had they're heavy? Are they heavy variable in, in yeah. Australia? Very, very heavy, heavier, much heavier than Canada. Anyways, it's similar to UK though, isn't it, Rich? Like in the variable. Yeah, exposure? I have a um, <laughs> I, I, if I, it's somewhere in one of my emails, I have a chart that like lines out for every country, um, and you've got like the US at one end of the spectrum where it's all fixed and it's all extremely long duration, and then you've got um, on the other end, it's Australia, which is extremely short duration. It's all fixed, but for one year or two years, which is sort of an, a contradiction in terms. Yeah, one of my good friends is uh, is a portfolio manager that over down there, I guess. Uh, Michael Schneider. You ever come across? He's he's hard to find his work. He's a bit you know, obscure. I know he's not watching this because <laughs> obscure cool. is usually good in this business. And this because business he's, obscure is good. <laughs> yeah, he's cool, so he doesn't watch the Looney Hour. Oh, yeah. uh, unlike Peter K. <laughs> but back to the uh, the so-called another perspective on on the pivot. You know, we mentioned before, Canadian dollar has been performing really well on, on a relative basis. You know, it's down versus the dollar, but it, it's done really well versus like yen, euro and stuff like that. And, you know, as has, you know, Brazil real and, and peso, maybe the pivot, you know, I, I said this last week, maybe the pivot is starting in that, you know, you tend to sell your winners and buy the losers in, in any kind of market. But for the Canadian dollar to be really weak today, again, on a day when it's, you know, Oil's oil up. is oil is up and, you know, the Bank of Canada is pointing up like that. That's that's a bit of a uh, a sign from what we look at anyway, but it just gives us more more, you know, conviction with with our strategies, what we're doing. Yeah. So we're going to get into, uh, you know. Canadian interest rates, oil, uh, big some obviously some some large developments happening there. But um, I'd love to quickly touch on so Tiff Macklem's comments today, which the market's obviously been picking up. Um, so he basically came out and said, uh, "quote Simply put, there is more to be done. We will need additional information before we consider moving to a more 
finely balanced decision by decision approach. So basically uh, he is signaling uh, higher rates from here. Keith, do you have the, uh, the market pricing as of right now for, for October? Like are we, I think are we pricing, what are the probabilities of 50 basis points at the moment? Yeah, I have the pricing right in front of me. It's uh, so from when the time he spoke today to the end, basically we've had about another quarter point added to rate height expectations coming up. It, it hasn't changed dramatically, guys, but it, it's changed. Mater- it's a material change in expectations. So as of right now, the next meeting is October 26th. Uh, so we were definitely getting 50. There's a small probability it could be more than that. So right now it's 50 basis points in October, another uh, 25 or so in, in December. So that's a 75, but it, it could be 100 points because the market's a bit on, uncertain right now. But we the mar- right now the market, uh, like last time, last week, we had the Bank of Canada's price at around a, a peak of 4%. So since this morning, it's now pricing in four and a quarter. So again, that, that's that's a pretty... So dramatic. we have another 25 basis points for your terminal rate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So before we go on, I just wanted to add two things, which is uh, sort of the economic impact or the potential economic impact of the housing. And I, I would just say, I think, you know, I think we're maybe counting our chickens a little bit too early on the economic side of it, because... Um, I still don't think we've felt the full impact of the interest rate hikes at all, which is compounds the mistake that I think Tiff Macklin is doing. It's, I guess, call me a hypocrite before I said that he was too easy. And now I think he's being too tight um, because didn't you, haven't you told us that, you know, lots of these mortgages are variable, but a whole other chunk, like 55% of the recent issuances or whatever it is, is variable, but the whole other chunk is very, very short like again the misnomer of the fixed rate for two years or fixed rate for three years and we're about to enter in that whole what do you call it you roll over that debt you refinance or you go to the you go to the bank and they you say well i used to rent uh, i used to pay a mortgage of one percent or two or five or three or whatever it is and now it's going to be what six seven and i think we're only just starting to get into that compound and add that to the fact that we think that there's weaker weakness in you know some of the sectors in Canada outside of the real estate area real estate and then we we talked about weaker employment we've also talked about real wages in Canada that are not at all keeping up with sorry wages in Canada are not at all keeping up with inflation unlike in the United States where you have real wage growth is actually one or two percent or even higher in some case in Canada that's not at all the case and so I, I just think yeah, I think we should, you know, this has still got some, a couple of uh, innings to play out specifically with the impact of the delayed interest rate hike. And the other thing I would say is the, so we, last week we talked about the GDP and the components of GDP. We talked about consumption, government, there's an uh, um, inventory component, there's a net export component. And one of them is investment. And Canada does not invest in, uh, we know it doesn't invest in research and development or intellectual property. Um, and what it has been investing in is in, um, in real estate and residential. And it's an incredible amount. I think it's like 38 or 40%, which is very, very high relative to other countries. And if that number starts to decrease, it'll pull on the, you know, it'll pull on that component, pull down on that component of, you know, the GDP equation and make it very, very hard for GDP growth to just on just, just purely looking at that kind of identity and where you can see weakness. 
Um, and so, you know, that that's sort of, unfortunately, it's like a vicious circle, right? You get less employment, uh, people spending less because they feel less confident, they have less assets, a- access to credit, and then they feel less confident and there's less spending in that sector. And then GDP starts to get lower and et cetera, et cetera. And so it, I still think, I think the, the, the pain on the housing, just from a purely economic standpoint, forget the pricing, I think is still a, still a ways away. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. It's all, it's all like slow moving. So yeah. And saying at this conference, we had Scott Terrio, who's uh, pretty active on Twitter there. Um, you know, he does um, consumer proposals and bankruptcies. Right. Um, and okay. so, yeah, he was just saying like, these people aren't typically proactive. Right. So they're not like, Oh my gosh, I got all this debt. Like I'm a little bit like, he's like, they only come in to start like asked talking about like filing bankruptcy and consumer proposals like once they start missing payments right so he's like what's happening now is like people are kind of like they're stretched they're you know like they're 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 barely making ends meet you're scraping everything you can to to sort of maintain your your mortgage right i mean in a day like you can't live on the streets i mean you need you need a house to put a roof over your head especially during the canadian winters here right so you just you just cut everything else out and and so it's going to be it's going to take time uh, Richie, as you mentioned, you know, I think it's something like t- close to 20% of all mortgages turn over in Canada every year. Wow. Um, right. So, cause it's cool. typically your five-year mortgage. It's turning right. over about Duh. 20% Sorry. of the, yeah, 20% <laughs> of your portfolio. But you have to consider like, of that, like there's a portion that's floating rate variable. So like, yeah, these things will take time to play out. Um, you've also got your private market. You've got your alternative market, which tends to be one-year bullet loans. Right. So you got a one-year bullet loan last year at 4% and or four to five, depending on the lender. And now you're, you know, you're renewing it seven and eight so those are the those are the circumstances that um it will take time and it's funny because the bank of canada's own data doesn't it say like it takes like minimum six months for like interest rate hikes to like filter through so like and that's the kind of a bogus number as well but anyway that's a conversation for yeah i I mean i think everybody anyone can like look out onto the streets in their day-to-day life and say things are slowing down um, but this is but the policymakers oh, sorry, aren't proactive. So I was just going to say, this is the problem. You know, one of the charts that, you know, got a lot of traction several months ago was the residential investment. So gross fixed capital formation. Remember that I component in the GDP identity is that residential investment as a percentage of GDP and Canada it peaked at like 11 or 10.8 or whatever it was. And just to compare, like I compared it to housing bubbles. We know ex post for sure, it was a housing bubble. Again, we don't know if Canada's a housing bubble. We'll find out in a couple of years. You'll right? find bubbles out bubbles. in the YouTube comments. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But in in the in 2008, the U.S. peaked at like 7% of GDP. And Ireland and Spain, which we know for a fact were housing bubbles, they peaked around the 12s. And I think Ireland got up to 13 or 14. I can't remember now off the top of my head. What I'm saying is when that starts to mean revert and they always mean revert, you cannot escape it. It's so Canada, I just don't believe, even though we have an incredible amount of population growth, yada, 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 I just don't think you can, you can't escape that gravitational pull. Um, and, and that's what happens when people plow into a non-productive asset. I mean, sorry, Key, sorry, Steve, just to call housing a non-productive asset, but anyways, it is what it is. <laughs> Someone's got to sell the that... immigrants the new homes. That's right. 
um, so something, you know, it sort of ties in with this conversation and what you mentioned as well, Rich, with, with growth around the world. Let's start with the growth data first. Um, it, it's always been our view that the U.S. will be the, 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 you know, the big boy, the, the strongest growing economy on an absolute and, and relative basis. And, and that seems to be the case right now because the U.S. numbers, they're, they're pretty strong. And it's, it's kind of ironic here because, you know, the Americans had their um, their ISM number this week. So that's the Institute for Supply Management. And uh, it's a diffusion index. Rich, do you want to describe what a diffusion index <laughs> is? No, I'm not allowed. <laughs> I'm not allowed to describe that. Anyway, the, uh, the, this index, the number that came out, it, it, was, it was just a, a smidgen better than what was expected, but it was a strong number. So again, it implies that America- What was the is, reading? I actually didn't, uh, don't know if I caught uh, that. It was 56.7 versus a, a 56 It was, it was a non-manufacturing. Yeah, so it, it's a it's a pretty good number. So the irony here, of course, is that the markets sell off. So you know, good news is bad news sometimes in the investment world. Sometimes bad news is is great for the investment world. But uh, so here's the irony here. You know, so the Americans are like they're still producing pretty good data. Uh, this morning we had the weekly unemployment claims, and again, like they were okay. You know, they were they were fine. Uh, the first Friday of every month, you get the monthly non-farm payrolls coming out. And uh, so, you know, that's the next biggest number. We'll, we'll see how that's moving. And uh, But the, the point, though, is that, you know, as Rich has pointed out before, the, the U.S. looks okay right now. It's not awesome because once you dig into it, like services are doing well, but goods is struggling. Uh, we talked about before how, we, you know, we suspect a lot of retailers will have bloated inventories going into um nike got slammed nike nike's earnings got slammed because they had a huge inventory bill anyway keep going yeah that's not because of junior junior loves what? buying the nikes yeah the and then you had you had apple which came out and said that they are uh shelving some of their um yeah new iphone production yeah so we have that happening but yet elsewhere around the world and again we've always suspected that we're, we're going to have to see september data September data is when we'll really start to see softness showing up around the world. And uh, so even like the global PMI number, which is the purchasing managers index, which is a good, you know, barometer for what's happening on, on a global basis. We now have had two months in a row. We're declining. So we're, we're, you know, as we get September data coming in from everywhere, um, like even in Germany, like the German PMIs came out today, yesterday, or today or yesterday rich i don't remember which day it was, it was. yesterday yeah like it's it's kind of softy sh- stuff right and soft. so from germany's a, data is horrible <laughs> i'm just being nice sorry. about it you're being I'm nice just, okay sorry well, I'm, I'm normally you know i'm very you know anti-european you know, <laughs> no i'm just realistic about the economic fantasy land called europe that's a bingo Drink. as well isn't it you yeah get that one yeah. Uh, but yeah, but Rich is right. Like it, it's pretty bad. So, but what this continues to do from from an investment perspective, I know a lot of people listen to the show is kind of trying to you know put the puzzle together. It, this all and 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 on top of this, it gives the Fed ammunition to continue being hawkish. You know, just saying, hey, we're not cutting rates, just as the Canadians did today as well. But it continues to point to a market where the U.S. dollar 
it, it's now getting to point where it's, it's dangerous. And it's dangerous because, for example, this week, uh, India came out and they said, hey, we're going to defend the rupee. So now you have the Indians are doing FX controls in, in some ways. Uh, the Koreans are doing it. I'm watching Japanese yen right now. And my God, if, if, if the BOJ or, or Finman, whoever's doing it, it doesn't matter. If they were to stop defending the yen, it would be a, a 10% snap immediately, which, of course, would break China at, at the same time. So you, you have all this stuff happening, and, and it's just outstanding, right? Again, I like to say if, if you're an investment manager and you're not excited, like this is like the Olympics right now or the seventh game of the, you know, the Stanley Cup finals or, or something like this. This is it, guys. It's all happening at the same time. And, you know, we continue to... to put all these dots together they're all connecting along the way so um but again like today with canadians being hawkish and oh by the way i think the bank of canada is coming to halifax very soon i missed them i'm hoping to get an invitation are you gonna go chirp that guy again i suspect i will be disinvited it was just a guy that's all Okay, we're so, not dropping uh, names. Well, wait, wait, Keith. Yeah, there's another angle to this, though. So I was in my client meeting today, and and I went through sort of my weekly stuff. And I guess the the thing is, is the, the problem why I I'm not as bearish as I might have been on risk assets. I'm not as bearish as I might have been a couple of months ago. And I think it's probably a function of because, like, yes, everything that you said, I agree. And there's like, there's obviously you know, room and scope for things to get worse. I get it. And the dollar is clearly putting on the squeeze. And we haven't even seen the Chinese get into the currency war stuff. And as we've discussed here before, the the yuan is pegged and way, way, way too strong for an economy that insists on doing stupid COVID zero. But the sentiment indicators across the board are really, really bad already. And if you look at technicals, whether it's, you know, the relative strength index, whether it's year on year growth stuff, whether you look at, um, yeah, so that's already terrible. And then valuations. So you've got a situation where like, yes, there's the Fed, which is, you know, a negative. And then you've got sentiment, which is, you know, like, so when sentiment is really, really bad, it, there's like a, there's a floor to it. It only, you can only, things are so shit that you only can go up. It's the same with technicals. And it's so bad. Is, it's yeah. It's so bad. It's good. Right. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. similarly, um, you know, and, and valuations are soup, like are, are very, very, very low, you know, again, they can only go up. Then just for people who aren't maybe as well versed as you guys are with this, another way of saying it is to, to show like the opposite example. If everyone is super bulled up on a particular asset, Bitcoin, the only way, it, the often the only where only place it has to go is down. Similarly, when everyone is absolutely certain that it's crap and it's always gonna like, and, and everyone is absolutely convinced and all the selling is sort of done, and technicals are really, really bad, and the valuations are really, really low, you could argue that maybe a lot of this negativity is already in the price. And I'm not saying that that might not be true for the US equity market, which is, you know, has a cap or a cyclically adjusted P ratio of 30. And but or maybe it's true for some, you know, some sectors, but I just I get the feeling that a lot of this negativity is already in the price somehow. And I just, the more you look at don't get me wrong. Again, I, I don't know. I guess I'm just a little bit muddled because you have a clear negative, which is the Fed, and then all these little positive technical factors that are sort of lining up. And if you get any kind of, I don't know, reprieve from Europe on the energy stuff, 
And if, or if you get China stop being stupid about the COVID stuff, you know, I don't know. It's just, there's, I feel like there's an, you know, it might catch a lot of people offside if anything at all goes right over the next. What's six gr- to yeah. Months. But what's great with this, Rich, is that you can structure your portfolio today. So you, you have exposure to the fat tail event. Right. And in this case is something just like, yeah. Does that come through? <laughs> yeah, we heard it. <laughs> I bet, I bet you the fonts could do a lot, a lot better You're job. Such a it. boomer. Honestly, it's so funny. <laughs> Oh, by the way, guys, Vandalay Industries, you guys did not pick up on that last week at all. No, it's, we didn't. Yeah, that's what George Costanza implied no, he worked for. That went for. right over our head. Anyways, yeah, yeah, I know. I always, <laughs> I was chuckling. Uh, but back to my cool moment here with Fonzie and, and I can't do that. Yeah, we, we got it. Fingers. We got it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but you can structure, you know, your, your investment portfolio. It doesn't always have to be all or none. So like if, if you're structured so that, you have exposure to a fat tail event and the fat tail event. So, you know, everyone who likes numbers and you're in that symmetry world, you've got a normal distribution chart and you know, like Rich is good with this stuff and I'm actually good with it too. I just pretend I'm not, but what I am, but like at, at the, at the, at, at either end of your normal distribution charts, you're looking at, you know, like the 1% half percent percentile. If that event happens, you can make, enough money on that end to offset or do a lot of offsets from losses, you know, from, from everything else. So the fat tail event today is that, you know, something, you know, that the Japanese, they, they do break or it, it is HSBC, which we got to comment on by the way, in, in a moment, or it, it's UBS or Credit Suisse or, or Deutsche or, you know, you, you name it. But as Rich pointed out, the more than likely event is that that stuff doesn't happen. And instead, we figure things out. A lot of people, you know, they're, they're asking, hey, are the Canadian banks, you know, are they going to go under and stuff? And, and I've been very adamant about it. They are not in that situation. That's, as of today, that's, that's not the case at all. So, you know, like, don't be snowballing an event out of something that hasn't happened. It could happen down the road, but that's not where we are today. And if that happens then, because sentiment is so bad, because I know we talked about a couple of weeks ago that, you know, hey, equities could bottom soon. You know, it, it could be a, a time within the next few months or it could be a percentage drawdown. It could be 10%, 20%, 2%. But, but that's what's so great today though, right? You, you, you can't put this stuff together. It doesn't always have to be all or none, you know? And you no, know, we're all really good, you know, if, if we're a realtor or a macro economist or portfolio man we can talk out of both sides of our mouth right definitely yeah absolutely and uh that's what makes us so cool but that's the way the investment world is i don't think you know what that word means (laughs) which one i don't think you think that i don't think that word means what you think it means (laughs) cool okay Uh, high school i was pretty cool and do you uh kind of do you not think like do you feel the probabilities? I mean, nothing's ever a certainty. Um, what do you feel like the probabilities are that this ends in some sort of like financial event, like some sort of crisis and of some degree? Like, I'm not saying it's in the U.S., but like, I mean, you know, there's been troubles brewing in the U.K. with some of these pensions, and then you've got Credit Suisse. Like, everybody's kind of like pontificating of like, oh my god, like who 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 is it that's gonna blow? But like, it's, it's for me you know, you're smarter than I am, but for me, I'm, I'm pontificating. I'm trying to figure out like 
the Fed getting rates to four, four and a half. Some people are saying 5%. Like the Fed getting to those rates, like you don't think, do you really think you can get there peacefully? Like I, I just, I'm really struggling to see it. So Rich, Rich will like this answer because Rich is a numbers guy, right? Go for it. <laughs> okay. The, the probability of some big event happening, I have it at 99%. Oh my God. I think Come it's on. happening. That's what they... No, however, as it is happening, it could be immediately softened by policymakers. So as an example, the, the UK, you know, the, the guilt market breaking last week, that is a financial event. Like that, that is an extraordinary event. And as Canadians, we have no idea you know, how extraordinary that was or, or that is. I'd probably say uh, outside of the people listening to the Looney Hour. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> had a clue. By the way, I, this past week, uh, I was chatting with someone who, who claims to be on the inside, a lot of this stuff. And, and they said there, there's another country with a similar stress point is developing as well. So um, it would be an equally as big of a name as, as the UK. And so if these things happen, though, you know, again, all these guys, they chat with each other every single day. So when, when the UK was running the trouble, they're on the phone with the Fed, right? They are. They're chatting with the Americans. They're saying, by the way, this is happening. And immediately the Americans say, what can we do to help you? Right. Let, let, let's get this done. So, you know, so, so Steve, when I say, yeah, it's 99%, something else is going to happen here, break. But, like, but it doesn't well, mean we wait, go it- into this. You know, Doesn't every Fed rate tightening cycle basically end in some sort of event? Ends in tears. Less. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like the greatest one, the what like it was back in like wait, in 93, wait. 94, you know, oh, like your highest LTMC, L- LCM, what is it? The long term capital market. Yeah, yeah. 98. No, you guys are so young. Long term capital. 94. <laughs> 98 was oh. the Asia crisis. Okay, kids. Sit down for a second. <laughs> So the, the 94 rate cycle, you know, for everyone who was, you know, actually adults back then. Um, so that's when the Fed, they, it was the same thing as today. They started hiking rates aggressively. And uh, it, the bond markets, you know, went into the crapper immediately. But, but it created a crisis in the, Mex- the Mexicans were the ones to feel it. So they, they call it the tequila crisis back then. And then, you know, uh, a few years later, we, you know, the, so the long-term capital management, you know, it was, it was this hedge fund down in New York, uh, all these Nobel Prize winners. And, you know, all they were doing, they're, they're, they're just long Russian debt. That, that's all they were. And they were levered up because they were taking the spread because Russian debt paid them a, a great spread. And they're levered up on it. And all of a sudden, you know, Russia went into crisis. The Soviet Union went into crisis, basically. And that's why it, it went under. But the point is, though, is, as you said, Steve, like when you get this hiking site, and of course, the year before that was the Asian crisis. So like everything gets linked to the Fed doing something. But Rich, you made a really good point there, uh, not just once, you've, you've been bringing up consistently. Normally, it's the emerging market world that leads the world into a crisis. And I've been saying that a, a long time. But, but Rich has been pointing out, and he's been absolutely correct with this. Right now, today, it's the developed world that, that's underperforming the emerging market world. Again, like you got the UK going under, right? So it, it, it's crazy. It's not Thailand and, and something like that. So it, Sorry, again, just it's to, a different game. To, Go ahead, Steve. To keep on that sort of, 
Yeah, and Keith, you're way older than I am, so you'll you'll, you'll have memory of all way way older. You'll have memory of every single rate hiking cycle going back, you know, a hundred years. Has there what? When was the last time there was like a tightening cycle that was like that ended peacefully? Like there was like the soft landing, like they they raised them and the the, the plane landed, and everybody got off. So there unscathed. hasn't there hasn't been one in in my career probably the I mean, you said the most recent one was i might get the years wrong a bit but 2018 because remember the fed was at zero for like 09 0809 whatever it was and then they started raising rates a quarter point every second meeting and it just got tighter and tighter and tighter and finally the emerging market world you know it just snapped because again something will break but you know the greatest thing about what we're experiencing today, and I, I say greatest because I think it, it gives us an opportunity to make money, is that everyone is raising rates aggressively at the same time. So it's not just not the Fed. Like again, like the Canadians today, yeah, we don't we, we think it's more important to get inflation down to two percent. We don't know if it will happen or how long it will take to get there. And you know, Steve and, and Peter Kay in Toronto at, at the housing symposium, you you guys got to deal with it, but. You know, again, everyone is doing it today. So, I mean, that'll, be I mean, at least, a, at least, a, at least, a crisis will will be will help get inflation down. Anyways, that's true. Um, I want to, I want to, I just address some of the points. I think everyone's got. So, I, I think that the, the the bubble is in bonds and not equities. When I think we talk about financial crises or crashes, I think that that's you know sometimes we conflate those two things. Um, I've been saying for a long time that the bubble is in bonds. Um, and I think, and I still believe that's true, even though bonds are down 20% in some cases, I still think these people are not going to get their money back in real terms. It's a haircut and it's going to be a permanent one. But I think a lot of the focus is on equities. And I think that that's a mistake and a function of our recent history. Maybe it's a function of our age. I think a lot of the investors that are in the market that are on the desks today really only have two cycles to really look back on. And I'm going to go over those two cycles and why they're different than today. And it's important. The 2000 cycle was a actual equity bubble. The cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, which is uh, made famous by uh, Schiller, um, who won a PhD, won a Nobel Prize in economics for some other stuff. But that was at 44 on December 1999. That is an incredible, incredible number. Um, and so what's a cyclically adjusted P ratio? It's basically normalized earnings adjusted for inflation and then the price you're willing to pay for those earnings. The tech sector at that time was, I think they were charging something like 70 times earnings, 70. So, I mean, just to give you, you know, so, it, I mean, that's just an absolutely incredible number for some parts of it. I mean, overall, I think the market was, I mean, so these, so you cannot compare the deflation or so the deflating of that bubble um, with what we're dealing with now. Incidentally, the recession was an extremely mild recession. It was actually later revised to be no recession. And just to give you, Steve, some, some context, the housing market in the U.S. fell one month in the 2019, from 1999 and like 2003, there was only one month of negative month on month growth. So even though you had a collapse in the S&P 500, I think of almost 70% or something like that, you had loads of job losses, you know, there was, I mean, it was a deflating deflation of a huge economic bubble, lots of money was lost, people lost, 
housing wasn't affected because there wasn't any leverage in the system. In 2008, it was the total opposite in a sense. You had very, very low price earnings ratios. I think that the price, the cyclical adjusted price earnings ratio was something like 20. I think the PE ratio for the S&P 500 was in the low teens. There was no real dislocation on the valuation side in 2008, but you had a massive, massive, massive debt overhang and a huge dislocation and bubble in the housing market. That obviously, in my view, caused a depression. People will call it recession. I'll go to my grave saying it was a recession, a depression, not a recession. And to the point where real retail sales took six years to get back to peak in the United States, eight years to get back to peak in Europe. Now we're in a situation where valuations are low um, for the equity market in the globally, maybe not so much in the US. And, you know, like, I think that the risk is priced in. I mean, the VIX is at, you know, 30, right? Like there's a lot of what we understand, like sentiment is terrible. Um, all the business confidence numbers are down. I mean, there's no kind of euphoria centered on the S&P 500 being at 3,700. And the price earnings ratio has already cratered. So, you know, when we say that there's going to be a financial accident, a crisis, I mean, spreads are already up. You know what I mean? Like there's already, it's just, I'm not exactly sure every, you know, there's a lot of focus on the equity market because I think it's what's, it's what's the tickers are. It's what people play. There's, you know, there's, there's, um, what's it called? Um, you know, there's documentaries, the GameStop documentaries, like trending on Netflix. Right. I mean, no one's ever going to do a documentary about the bond bubble. Right. And the fact that people who invested in German 30 year bonds are down 35% or, you know, incredible numbers. So it's just, it's a lot less sexy. And, and I, pro and I would argue, I would submit that Keith would agree with me that it's probably far, far more important in some ways, the bond market, um, especially the government bond market, especially in the developed world. But I think that that's why in some ways the emerging market has escaped. They started raising rates way, way early before the fed across the LATAM and across the Asia X Japan, they started raising rates. Real interest rates are now positive in those countries and they have, their debt to GDP levels are way, 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 way lower. Whereas in developed countries, and I mean Europe, your debt to GDP levels are high. You've got shit demographics, you got shit productivity, you know? And it's, I think that that's why, although there's a lot, people want a crisis. I get it on Twitter. Everybody wants a crisis. Give it to us, YouTube. Give it to us, but it's like, but the, the what you need is overvaluation and overhangs and for those to be violently exposed and deflated. And, and I just don't see it. Now, cue the comment section to call me naive. Yeah, you're going to be the least <laughs> favorited. I don't know. Am I totally off base? Like, I, I mean, I don't know. Keith, Keith, go for it. Give it to me. <laughs> one, one second. Move out of the way. <laughs> Old man yells at the cloud. Uh, oh, he wants to agree with me. Look at that. No, I, I think the, the challenge that the public has today, we've always grown up on the stock market. Yeah. So no one, you know, you're not taught about the bond market because, you know, it's, it's boring, right? It's not exciting or anything. Uh, but everyone should understand that if we do get a crisis in the bond market, you know, you get permanent losses experience, it, it automatically will create, you know, this deflationary 
collapse. Like you will be you'll be begging for inflation in, in that environment. And the reason that happens is because pension funds are stuffed with bonds. But that's that's the way they are. Banks, regulatory capital for banks, it, it's it's all bonds. Insurance companies, it, it's about 40% in, in bonds. So if bond markets do experience the, you know, this, this severe crisis or moment, uh, it means you get permanent losses in these big, larger funds. So example, if, if pension funds experience a huge loss, you know, guess what? Your pension <laughs> ain't going to be as big as what you were promised. And you know, you can scream at the clouds or yell at the clouds all you want, but it, you know, it, it ain't coming back. Uh, but it, it's a real difficult environment. And, and that's why policymakers will always bail out the bond market. So like you take Japan as an example, or you take the Brits from last week. Again, I keep talking about Japan today because I think, man, I, I've, this, it's a dream. You're, you're, every peg in the world, every financial peg, it always breaks eventually. Some can last a long time, others not so long, but they always break. So right now, though, the Japanese are pegging the bond market and the currency market at the same time. And again, you know, once something dramatic does happen with, with the Japanese market, you're going to go back and say, oh, yeah, yeah, why, why didn't we, we see it's that? The, it's the impossible trinity. It's called the impossible trinity for a reason. It's impossible. <laughs> Anyway, I can't sorry. wait to see you. Yeah, the Hockey Hall of Fame. That's a great line. The impossible. We need to get some shirts drawn up. The Impossible Trinity. We'll bring it. We can. I, there's lots of them on the I internet. Mean, there's there's three of us. Anyway, yeah. sorry, Keith. There's three. No, but it's it's again. If the point is that if it is the bond market where the crisis is, because there's always residual value in the stock market, and like whereas like you know. You know, I was pretty bearish on the stock market there a, a while back, and it, I become less bearish. You know, I think we are getting to that point where, you know, what there's not a lot of downside left on it. Um, but you know that you're, the bond. Wow, you're you and Rich, you guys are both going to get roasted in the YouTube comments. Yeah, I said this a week or two weeks ago, right? Yeah, I didn't I'm say just, hey, I'm just it I'm is just the, bugging you. I'm just bugging you. Yeah, YouTube I didn't is, say it's YouTube the is bottom, always waiting for the right? world to end. Yeah, yeah, it's all great. Um, but, you know, like it's you're never going to call the top or bottom in, in anything, but it's, you know, we're, we're getting closer to it. Um, and I'm telling you, through the, the, the moment that one of the, the key central banks, which would be the Fed, really, once they do this pivot and it will happen, guys, like it, it's going to happen. And people might think, oh, it's going to take forever. But when it does happen. Like, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Like, it's, it's you know, risk on is going to go to the moon. So, like, you, that's why with the investment portfolio, like, you'd never be all out of equities. And you should never be all in equities, right? It's just, you're just playing beta on, on the market. But, um, yeah, there, there will come, come a time soon Well, you know, this will turn around. However, because we talk out of, you know, both sides of, of our mouths, uh let, let's not underestimate the opportunity, you know, for someone like Japan or, or the Chinese or someone like that to, uh, to break here. And if, if that would happen. So, for example, if the Japanese yen broke, right, they just decided, like, for example, today, this is the lowest it's been since they said we're going to defend the currency. And it's a big deal. Like they, they spent 
you know, zillions of, of yen today, you know, doing this. Um, just say they open, they, they stop defending yen tomorrow. Like it would literally drop 10% immediately. So, and then that creates like Canadian dollar will be down four or 5% on the day. Like do that, they have it, to sell off? This may be a demographic. Do they have to sell off U.S. Treasuries in order to defend that? Yeah. So what? So what they're doing? They're they're selling dollars. So that right. nobody holds dollars, right? They all hold a U.S. dollar asset. And, and so the, do the they Japanese be holding... have a lot of assets. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Correct. And like we talked about the Chinese before, you know, uh, you know, they have three trillion in reserves, but it's only one trillion that's liquid. Like that's in their treasury holdings. The other two trillion, they can't sell it. Like it's in real estate, it's investments in this, this, and that, and and whatever. But so for for the Japanese, though, one of the reasons you know that the you know the U.S. Treasury market is under pressure right now, because you have the Chinese are selling treasuries and the Japanese are selling treasuries, the two biggest holders. So the Japanese are the biggest foreign holder. You look at the tick data, the Treasury. Uh, <laughs> it's something like would, that it, it is the acronyms code. man there's too right, many so acronyms. you've got these massive nations selling selling u.s treasuries i mean yields yields up yeah so they sell the treasury right and then they get u.s dollars for it and then they sell the u.s dollars to buy yen to try to support the yen no, yeah, I'm just thing. trying to make that connection back on U.S. U.S. bond yields. Yeah, basically. yeah, yeah. So you have that happening on a day like today. So the Chinese are doing it. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority are doing it like at insane levels right now. Uh, like the Japanese are doing it. The Koreans are doing it. Um, and yet here's the day. Like the, so, like no one, like seemingly. And and again, this sounds so simple and stupid. We don't realize it. Even though these guys are selling dollars, guess what? somebody else buying it right it, it's and and so the dollar is still surging higher here and uh but I, again i think that's why you, you can tell i'm pretty excited today because it's it is one of these moments that the young guys will be writing books about and singing <laughs> songs around the campfire stuff like that keith's excited we're excited uh hockey hall of fame December the 1st. It's a great place to wrap it up. Uh, again, we'll have more information uh, in the next one to two weeks in terms of ticket sales. Those will, those will be released in the next one to two weeks. So yeah, if you're looking for a ticket, uh, you'll hear about it first on this announcement or on our Twitter feeds. Um, so those will be going out. Uh, you know, we're still working on some of the details on, on pricing and whatnot, but it will be friendly. I think, you know, you're again, you're getting a f- admission to the Hockey Hall of Fame and you know, for, for a drink and whatnot. So anyways, we'll have more, more information on that shortly. Um, as always, we appreciate your guys' support. All we ask is that you share this episode with at least one friend, one family member, you know, trying to continue to build the Looney Hour community. So, um, you know, help us build that so we can, you know, reach more people and, um, you know, make, make change for the good. So as always, appreciate your guys' support. See you next week.